Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like US coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there, Choose your content, and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome back to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. And we have a special episode for you this week. We thought we'd turn the tables, and instead of asking the questions, we are answering them. This week, Chris and I face the scrutiny of Larry Jewett, who is associate editor for Coin World since mid-April. And Larry is somebody returning to the hobby at a, I would say, a little later in life. And he had a bunch of questions for us to sort of guide his hobby journey. And we thought that this conversation was something that the listeners would enjoy. And so that's what we did this week. If you enjoy our conversation with Larry, if you've enjoyed any of our previous interviews or any of our previous content, please remember to keep on listening every week and subscribe on whichever platform you use to listen to podcasts. So we were lucky to talk to Larry because he had a lot of really interesting and I think incisive questions about the hobby from someone who doesn't have years and years of experience to kind of color their perceptions of different elements of the hobby. So I think that that allowed him to to ask really clear and interesting questions that novice and advanced collectors would find interesting. I know one thing you and I have talked about a little bit, Jeff, is how for a lot of numismat experienced numismatists, coin dealers, um, researchers, people who have been in the hobby or the industry for a long period of time, a lot of processes of an, of analyzing coins sort of become subconscious in the sense that, you know, you learn to recognize cleaning or you learn to recognize post-mint damage. Or if you become like Mike Diamond, if you become a, um, a varieties and error specialist, you know, you start to learn to recognize coins that have been through that particular process. So I think that slowing down and answering, I wouldn't describe them as basic questions, but slowing down and answering broader questions and trying to figure out how to translate numismatic knowledge into language that's accessible for non-collectors. I think that can actually be really valuable even for experienced hobbyists. Yeah, it's good to reframe the way you think about something or or at least pause and step back and go, wait a minute, is this the right view? Am I taking the right angle on it? So that's why we found this discussion valuable and interesting, and we hope you do too as well. And actually, with a mind towards you know Jeff and I answering some questions, we would like to ask something of you all, the listeners. We loved... Uh, having Larry on the show, and we loved answering his questions, but we would really like to answer some of yours. Now, pretty much every week, we have what people in the um, video producing and content producing sphere refer to as calls to action, in that we exhort listeners to keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe. I, I can't I can't imagine how many times listeners have heard me or Jeff say, Jeff or I, excuse me, so Jeff or I say some version 70, of that. 70 plus episodes, at least twice an episode. So do the math. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jeff, 40 million. 
Jeff, I write for a living. I can't do math. That's yeah, that's okay. why I write for a living. Um, but on a more serious note, we would really not only like to hear from you, but we'd like to do an interview segment where we just field questions from the listeners. Now, and we get we get emails um, every week or every two weeks or so from from listeners who tell us what they think of how the show is doing, segments that they'd like to see us do, just saying hi. And we love getting those emails. But right now, I'd like to more explicitly and specifically solicit say that five times fast um no thanks questions <laughs> questions from listeners to construct a segment in which we answer just listener questions so if you have anything you've been wanting to ask us about your own experiences in the hobby about a series that you might already be collecting or are interested in collecting or you just want to know more about jeff and i you want to know more about coin world and how you know, and what our work at Amos Media entails, we would really love to hear from you. And we'd love to know what you want to know. So please, if you have a little bit of spare time, if you if there are any burning questions, or even just sort of passive queries, that you would be interested in getting our take on, we would really love to hear from you so that we can construct the segment. So with that, thank you so much for listening to this. Uh, We hope you enjoy our conversation with Larry Jewett. We are delighted to be joined today by Larry Jewett, Associate Editor at Amos Media. Now, Larry joined the fold back in mid-April, but he brings a wealth of experience in publishing, but also broadcasting. And Larry has really been sort of an inspiration for the podcast in recent months, asking us questions and forcing us to view things in a different way. So we wanted to turn the tables and have him on the show and ask Chris and I questions, and we can just have a natural coin conversation and talk about the hobby and share some of these great insights. And uh, for somebody who's you know, looking to get into the hobby and really learning and soaking up all the knowledge. That's what our aim is today. So thank you for being here today, Larry. I appreciate the opportunity. I've uh, really enjoyed being on the other side of the microphone with you guys and listening to what you have to say. And uh, seldom comes a a Tuesday or Wednesday where I don't walk away going, huh, I didn't know that. And now I do. Awesome. Well, that's certainly that, that's certainly something that we uh, we strive to do, and we certainly strive to instill that in our listeners. So I'm glad to hear that we're uh, we're doing all right with that. Tell me about your collecting journey, uh, because you you know coming back to Amos Media, you were there before. You, you this has reignited a collecting passion. Yeah, because I actually started back with the Blue Whitman folders, like everybody else, when I was a kid, and. Uh, this was back in the early 70s, and, and then I kind of went off and found other things, and I uh, had these coin books that were just kind of hanging out and got rid of them, to lack of a better term, took them to a dealer and got some money for them as, uh, you know, the times where I needed a little extra money, and they, they became a, a sort of an investment type thing. But when the opportunity came, when I joined the uh, Amos team back originally in 2006, and uh, Coin World and... Uh, Lynn Stamp News, and then I was on the automotive hobby side of things, and that ended in 2016. So I always knew of Coin World, and now in its 60 years of existence and all it meant, but I really worked in a parallel universe and didn't really have much much going on. But then got to thinking about it as uh, time came along here, and I had the opportunity to get back with it. And it's just like, okay, let's just let's reignite that coin situation. One of the first things I read in, I believe it was actually in the Coin Collecting for Dummies book, is how about if you go to a social gathering and you show somebody a picture of your dog or your grandkids or anything like that? And well, that's all really cool, but everybody has grandkids and dogs and things. But if you looked out 
a coin from 1921, let's say for next year, it's going to be the centennial. You pull that out. Now, all of a sudden, you've got somebody who's quite interested in what you have there. And it's not the same as having a picture of something. You actually can hold it. You can look at it. You can hold it up to the light. The person who owns the coin can tell a little bit about it. You can educate the people who are interested and may even, you know, pass it down and pass the torch, so to speak, to ignite somebody who's interested in that. For me, hearing that and thinking this was pretty cool and then my birthday was coming up and so my wife bought me a proof set of the year that I was born and it's like this is really cool and we started in on the family gathering up the America the Beautiful and the state quarters getting the Whitman folders back out again and then I got this harebrained idea that I wanted to get a coin from the year I was born from every country in the world that existed back then quite a few of them that are currently existing didn't exist back then so now that become the quest. And I think the best part about this is simply the idea that it's what you want it to be. Just because somebody else is collecting large cents or, you know, colonial or paper money, whatever the case may be, you don't have to do that. You can stand alone and everybody uh, kind of tolerates what everybody else is doing. And uh, to a degree, I mean, that's people are people. But so I'm just kind of going off on like three different tangents here. And who knows, by the time that we hear this on the Internet, I may be off on a fourth one somewhere. (laughs) You know, it's funny. Your description of your comments right there sounds a lot like how we conceptualize the show. So there (laughs) there you go. I like your emphasis on the, the fact that, you know, the hobby is what you make it because you go to shows and there are people who are looking just to, there's a guy in our local coin club who has collected the presidential dollars for all the Ohio born presidents and put together little sets for his grandkids. And, you know, that's not something that's going to break the bank, but to find them in proof, to find the circulating versions, to put them in a nice little display, it's something to engage your mind and spend some time and create a nice little gift item. And, you know, that's as meaningful as somebody who puts together, you know, say Chris Dempsey, who put together a a collection of hobo nickels that's, um, you know, worth $700,000. And, you know, both are admirable and both are fun and both offer opportunities for growth and learning. It's just however you can enjoy it to find the, the fun in it. And we had the experience when we went to a restaurant with the America the Beautifuls where we would get the quarters back in change before there was a coin shortage. And I was looking at the quarters and the girl said, is there something wrong? And I said, no, I'm just looking for certain kinds because I have on my phone which ones I need. And I'm looking at it. And then I had to go back and make another purchase. And she looked at her, looked at the coin she gave me back. And she said, oh, I think this one's Canadian. Well, as it turns out, it was a wheat penny. <laughs> and I and I I made the I, I put a quarter in the jar right there because I said penny I meant to say cent because now <laughs> it's just the you can tell the contenders and the pretenders because if somebody says penny to me now I just don't even talk to them anymore because <laughs> they are cents just read the read it you know it'll tell you that they are cents that was one of the first things I learned so but uh, interesting thing too also on the uh, world coin side of things it was a story that Jeff had written back in January of either 19 or 20 that I looked at and I thought this is really cool because I own a Greyhound. And one of the coins that was featured was a Greyhound coin from Somaliland. So the first thing I did was I went to eBay because the local coin dealer didn't have one. And I went to eBay and I bought that coin. And it's like, yeah, it's not my birth year, but it's just one that I wanted to have. And so it's been a, a real cool conversation piece. 
And when we think about young numismatists, I, I think of myself as being one of those, even though I do have an AARP card, things like that. But I believe it's just in the manner of how, my, how long I've been involved in the hobby. It's great to read about the folks that have been involved since they were seven years old and they've made it a lifelong passion. And, and I admire those folks. It's not somebody I'll ever be. But it's just the idea that we have so much experience out there and so much we can learn from each other without to the point where, you know, it's just I'm, I'm taking the ANA seminars and I'm loving it, loving every minute of it. And, it, you know, I, I hate it that I can't go to I hate it. World's Fair was canceled, things like that, because I can't go actually. But I'm excited that there's going to be the prospect that someday I'm going to be able to experience it in three dimensions. That's really interesting, sort of being introduced to coin collecting in the midst of a pandemic when a lot of the traditional avenues for hobby learning aren't necessarily open to you because, you know, you mentioned the canceled shows. And although the a seminar is something that I've I've been meaning to do for a long time because I kind of did not have the experience of, of ever attending the a seminars, I just kind of was introduced to it when I was really young and just kind of worked my way through it organically without that specific sort of institutional experience. But that's interesting. You know, in a time when coins are becoming more and more scarce, not only because of the, the coin shortage, specifically in the context of the pandemic, but also, you know, with digital and cashless transactions starting to take over more and more, which is an anxiety that tons of hobby veterans have expressed to me and I, I think have probably expressed to each other and to the sort of hobby at large. How do you feel coming into it with a publishing background and, and a sort of a journalistic background? I imagine that that helps to inform you as you're as you're sort of learning about this stuff. I imagine that you bring you mentioned you've mentioned a couple of times how important research is to you. I imagine you bring that sort of journalistic sensibility of trying to learn about a story and then communicate it to other people. Do you find that that's a really effective sort of entree into the numismatic space? Yeah, I think so, because, I mean, they can look right through a pretender. Like I used the example earlier about the penny versus cent. One of the first things you should know, that's an incredibly basic situation right there. You should know, you know, the difference. You should know what it means. You should know the terminologies. You, there's a lot of things you should know right off the bat. But all that does is serve as a stepping stone to what there is to learn out there and, and how much it means and the symbolism on the coins and what the, the different things mean on that what liberty means what the you know what the arrows mean what the stars mean and and all that because every coin every bit of currency tells a story and whereas we can't necessarily know the heritage or the fact that this was in you know JFK's pocket the night before he was assassinated in 63 or whatever the case may be coins themselves tell about the the society and the history and uh, that's why some of the designs that we see on the America the Beautiful quarters are are pretty cool in that respect. So, but right now I'd like to take advantage of the way this conversation's been going and ask you guys a little bit of a, a question I have on my mind. And, and Chris, I read a lot about the uh, digital currency and and all the different things that are going on. We have all these cashless transactions going here. But the internet itself, while it's been a great research tool for me, especially a traditionalist. Has the internet itself been more of a help or has it been a hurt for the hobby in you guys' opinion? Mm, that's interesting. I think that it's been, I don't know that help or hurt is the axis on which I would analyze it, I, which is not to, to object in any way to the question. It's just to suggest that I think it's been a disruption to the hobby, right? Like that's that's one of those buzzwords that the tech gurus and oligarchs are always throwing around is, well, you know, this is going to disrupt the way that we do business whatever the emerging technology is, whether it's cashless payment infrastructure, 
or whether it's social media. You know, the internet has proven to be a disruption to so many traditional ways of doing business. None maybe more so than the publishing industry, which, you know, it seems like every day, you know, some newspaper or some news outlet is publishing a story about how the internet has radically changed journalism. In the context of numismatics, it's been both a help and a hurt. I think it's it's hurt in the sense that there are more opportunities for people to be ripped off in the sense that people will go on eBay. And though eBay has made efforts in the last you know, number of years to counteract this, you know, there are opportunities for people to buy a lot of fake material, although some buying platforms are making an effort to cut down on that risk. And there's just so much information, too, that I think people can be overloaded by it. I certainly know that's been the case for me. Sometimes in researching an article, it's like, there are a dozen different directions I could take this, and there's a huge amount of available information. So sometimes it's difficult to synthesize things concisely. That said, the opportunities for networking and the opportunities for building social spaces for the hobby that's afforded by the internet, whether it's the subreddit r slash coins or any of the coin collecting subreddits, whether it's informational videos on YouTube, whether it's dealer groups on Facebook, there are innumerable opportunities online for people to interact and to and, and Larry, you, you brought it up uh, in your comments a couple of minutes ago when you said, you know, that this is a community that's sharing knowledge. And I think that the Internet offers a number of different forums on which to do that and just on which to organize, to compare notes, to share research. And then, of course, it also impacts the, the online sales aspect also impacts dealers. You know, dealers have to post stuff online or at least it's it's easier for them to do that, which is disrupting the traditional sort of economics of a coin show. In the sense of why would you go and pay bourse fees and, and rent a table, you know, and bring your stuff to a coin show where you don't know if people are going to show up if the business is online. But a coin show is a traditional sort of educational venue as well. It's a networking venue and it's a sales venue. So, you know, disrupting that and bringing that online does take some of the personal aspect out of it. So as far as whether on balance it helps or hurts the hobby, I really don't know. But it's definitely disrupting the way that the hobby has traditionally kind of conducted itself or been conducted. I think when you weigh all the considerations, I think it's definitely a net positive because, you know, for all the folks posting videos on YouTube or listings on Etsy with grossly overpriced and misidentified quote unquote error coins, there are coin collector groups on Facebook, there are websites, there are message boards where collectors can coalesce around this shared interest and share that information. And, you know, you have something like the Newman Numismatic portal, which has really revolutionized making all sorts of information available. You know, you talk about the importance of research. Research is, there's so much research that can be done instantaneously now that could not be done 10 years ago and five years ago. You know, when I'm looking up some obscure item in a European auction, I know there are a couple sites I can go to and I can look and see if, if maybe an, an example of this has been sold in the last 10, 15, 20 years, depending on the, some auction house records or, or go farther back on, on these databases. You can look in the portal to see if there's catalogs of stuff, uh, classic numismatic literature literature that has been digitized, collections of the U.S. Mint and different museum collections. You look at what the ANS, the American Numismatic Society, has online. The American Numismatic Association has digitized 115, 20 years of the numismatist. There's so much information available. Yes, you're sort of you know, drowning in the fire hose. You're trying to get a sip from a fire hose, but there are ways to 
effectively balance that. And the collector has never been more powerful. It's also, you know, you see the information, once information is out there, markets can be created. You look at what a lot of what happened in the 60s, uh, I think of uh, obsolete notes. We've, we've interviewed many experts in those uh, civil war tokens. When those areas, when information became available about them, books and journals, suddenly collectors had some certainty as to, well, this is a rarity. This is not, you know, there's markets can act in a more reasonable and efficient manner when you have that information. And so we know that the market for these items, some of these items were I won't say worthless, but dealers look down upon them because it's not, it's something outside of the traditional realm. They don't know what it is. They don't deal in this. And so it, they just discount it. They just, it's, it's junk box type fare, whatever. Well, all of a sudden when, when they can go to the bookshelf and pull off a book and find out that, Hey, wait a minute, this is an R6 token. There's only 25 known. And you know, my goodness, the value increases. Plus then you can find buyers for objects all over the world. Dealers are shipping coins to, you know, Singapore, to you name the country, Japan, wherever, because of eBay, because of their websites. And it's made it harder for dealers. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the fact that I can go price comparison shop the same coin at eight different dealers and figure out, okay, who has it the cheapest, who has it, you know, and, and I figure out, oh gosh, okay, this this person is, I can look at their reviews online. It's just leveled the playing field for the collector for sure. And it's created new markets. There are problems. There are always going to be problems in any marketplace, whether that's counterfeits. You know, we see that now with the, the fake stuff coming from Wish and Alibaba and these other things. But there's no shortage of ways to educate yourself that, you know, before you had you went to your local coin club and there was 10 20 30 other people there you were limited by that combined knowledge now it's it's unlimited so net positive for sure I agree with you, Jeff, wholeheartedly. I would say, though, that sort of numismatic media literacy is important, though, in the sense that even though this information is broadly available, and I, I think that the greater access to information has reduced these kind of information asymmetries that once existed between dealers and collectors, I do think, though, that especially if purchasing high-end material, it's always a good idea to either really develop your own base of knowledge before laying out any money or developing a relationship with a reputable dealer who might be able to steer you in the right direction. That said, Absolutely. the ability, individual collectors do have a much greater ability to educate themselves. So that's, I think that point is really well taken. And I think the situation, and uh, you guys make really good points on that one. And uh, of course, we didn't mention the fact that podcasts come through the internet now. So that's another <laughs> way to uh, to get the information that you need right there. But I mean, I still believe that traditionally, a lot of people prefer to actually handle the material before they, uh, I mean, you can look at the internet shopping situation on no matter what, would you buy a pair of shoes that say they're a size 10 and they're actually a size nine and go through all that stuff? Would you necessarily buy a coin based on the picture of what may not be that coin? And, and, you know, you brought up a little bit about that. It's just I would think that there are as far as the information that you get and the background you can get and the knowledge that you get, it's unparalleled. But as far as uh, transactions and I've done some Internet transactions and I really think it's really boosted the auction companies 
with the uh, fact that they could still have their auctions even though they weren't on site at different shows. So there's pluses and minuses, but Chris, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's definitely been a disruption. Yeah, and I would say too, though, your point about the large auction firms, I also think of the grading companies in this context. The internet theoretically, and now I don't know if it has panned out this way in practice, but the internet theoretically offers the ability for small dealers to tap into markets as well. So someone who doesn't necessarily want to go to the trouble of renting or buying a retail space and then developing that retail space and buying cases and all the stuff that they need, if they can list online, that does give people an, an option. And for people who want to support small dealers and local businesses, it does give them an avenue to do that, at least if they do their research and understand the size of the different dealers that they want to go to. So that said, though, it does also allow large companies, the large grading companies and the large auction firms, it allows them to move a huge amount of their business online. And to the extent that they're starting to consolidate, I do wonder what effect that will have on small dealers in the long term. So just something we're thinking about. Well, as a follow-up to that, I mean, I kind of think about in my non-collecting days when I'd walk in at two or three o'clock in the morning after, you know, consoling friends or whatever the case may be, and, and encountering a TV show that offered to sell you this great coin from bygone era that is just, you know, has all the bells and whistles and the next greatest thing, but don't, you know, buy now and we'll send you two of them. Uh, you know, television itself before the internet, was television a good way to be a coin collector and, and practice buying? I would say that television offered a venue for somebody who didn't want to go the traditional route. Every platform has pluses and minuses. You mentioned the um, very much, you know, wanting to go to a coin show. Well, I'm right there with you. Absolutely. There's nothing more fun in the hobby than going to a show and seeing the objects in person, talking to fellow collectors and sharing information. That being said, coins are small enough objects that, you know, and easily imaged for the most part that, you know, we can get representative images and, and look at them online, there is something lost in the, um, when everything shifts to online, you know, we, we see that now in the pandemic where, you know, people are home and they're lonely and they're, you know, we're missing that social connection, but back to the TV thing, you know, I can't remember the price, but several months ago I saw and this example and it, it reminded me of the, the positives and the negatives that exist out there. One of the TV companies, telemarketers, whatever, they had put together sets of American Silver Eagles by date, and they came in the nice album, not the blue folder, but a nice album, a presentable, you know, and when you did the math, you go, okay, you know, there's 35 years or whatever it was, 86 to 2018, 2019, I can't remember, you know, then you do the album and they've done all the work and yeah, you know, it's it's is it higher than what you're going to pay if you went and hunt for them yourself, dealer to dealer? Sure. If you're somebody who just wants the only item and doesn't want to spend the time looking for them or hunting for them, then they've saved you that time and you're trading that, paying a little higher price per coin for the item and you get to have the instant collection. Now, does that make you a collector? Does it make you an investor? You know, you ask Specifically, is it good for collecting? I think the thing that inspires collectors that you've mentioned that we all tap into is the hunt. We all love the thrill of the hunt. And if you're going to be a collector, you're not acquiring, you're collecting. And so 
I don't know that somebody who buys on that show is necessarily officially a collector. They are buying stuff. They are collecting. But to me, the thrill of the hunt is sort of the the other side of that equation that how do you put a price on, hey, Chris and I, went when Chris was here in Ohio, we went over to a little show in Indiana and we made a day of it. And, you know, we went and had lunch and we hung out and it, that was an event and that was a, a nice day. And so we got to tap into the collecting side of things, but we got to have a social aspect and to me, it's really a mixed bag. You know, we, we've seen plenty of reports of, of folks who've not gone with a trusted local dealer and they paid more than they could have gotten the item elsewhere. But there's no shortage of information. If somebody wants to inform themselves about what a true market price is, the avenues are there. So I feel bad in one sense, but I don't in another, you know, that it's really, I'm car shopping, you know, I'm, I'm exercising due diligence, you know, trying to figure out, okay, what's the safest, what's good gas mileage, what's, what do I like and all that. It's a process and that's not an investment. That's something that, you know, is just a tool to use to get around. Whereas, numismatics, if done, you know, some, some people think there's an investment side to it. And so you're going to have to especially be educated in that regard. I would say three things to expound on those observations, all of which I think are, are apt. First of which is that I really enjoyed going to the coin show in Indiana with Jeff. Um, that was a lot of fun. I miss going to shows with you, Jeff, and I look forward to, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and I look forward, you know, we did New York earlier this year, and uh, once the pandemic has abated, uh, I look forward to going to more with you. And Larry, I would love it if you could join us at, uh, at some shows as well. We could yes. hang out and you know, um, chop for some coins and see some cool stuff, which also, uh, I think Jeff, you said something at the end there that, um, I picked up on a little bit and that's that if you want to start to understand the market for coins, and if you want to understand how to identify cleaning, how to identify varieties, um, any number of other sort of diagnostic criteria for coins, in addition to learning their market value, there really isn't a substitute for just going to a whole bunch of shows, going to a bunch of shops, talking to people and seeing how these transactions unfold, what is paid and, where market values are. So there's a lot of value to that. The second thing I would say is in researching a numismatic firm for a story that I was writing, I was struck by something in their advertising materials. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, because I don't have them in front of me, but their advertising materials said, we make collecting easy. And that to me raises a number of interesting questions. Mainly, is coin collecting supposed to be easy or is the struggle to educate yourself and to learn more? Or is the the struggle, I mean, obviously, it's it's a struggle of a certain kind. It's not an existential one, certainly not. In, of life struggles, it is not the most dire by any means. All but, right. All right, Kierkegaard. <laughs> <laughs> or as, 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 we, as we call him in this neck of the woods, Kierkegaard. Um, so... Of life struggles, obviously, this is not the most the most dire or the most serious, but is the challenge and the difficulty of educating yourself on a topic and of seeking out the material that captures your interest the most and trying to assemble a collection of the best quality or the coins that most closely match what your conception of an ideal collection is, should that process be easy? I mean, if you can just buy the entire assembled set of what someone else deems to be a collectible set, have you done the work of becoming a collector? Now, obviously, the definition of collector or numismatist, and this is something Jeff and I talk about a lot here on the show, obviously, that definition is very porous. 
in the sense that it's a line that's easy to cross and hard to define. But I do think that there is an, an aspect of numismatics that is lost when you're just buying a set that someone else has assembled. Now, if you've established a relationship with a dealer who knows exactly what you're looking for and has a good eye for it, and they're finding you individual examples to put together that match the criteria you've established for your collection, that, again, like I said, the definition is fairly amorphous. So should collecting be easy? I would argue it shouldn't be easy, but the challenge should be enjoyable. And then the third point, and this speaks also to the um, the conversation about the internet we just had, which is in a recent interview with uh, Zach Edick and Jamie Kovach, who directed a documentary on The Scent, I can't remember his name, but there was, um, there was essentially a, an industry expert who was talking about the usability and the value of continuing to strike coins at all, but specifically The Scent. And he said something that, again, has kind of stuck with me, uh, evidenced by the fact that I remember it. Um, though I did watch the movie through a couple of times, so um, I'm probably more familiar with it than some. Um, he, he said, what will ultimately determine the survival or the continued striking and issuance of the scent doesn't really have much to do with economics or consumer welfare. It's really more a function of convenience in that someone somewhere, again, I can't remember the name of the study, go watch the movie. I found it interesting. And, and they talk about this in greater detail and more specifically than I can based on my recollections of the film. He said something to the effect of convenience is going to be what determines the sense fate. And that, you know, using sense to transact and engaging in transactions that go to a specific sentiment, you know, $2.67 as opposed to $2.65 or $2.70, those transactions and fumbling around with change in one's wallet or taking the time to make change from a dollar bill or something, that adds, you know, some fraction of a second or one or two seconds or something on average to a transaction, which cumulatively equates to years and years every year of time that is used up in those transactions. So if it becomes more convenient to retire the cent, that's probably ultimately what's going to happen, that industry and consumer demands will probably contour them or will probably arrange themselves on lines of convenience. And I think that that same process might happen in the context of numismatics. And I think that's where sort of online forums have really started to, to take over because it is convenient. I mean, you know, I can shop for a pretty broad variety of coins from reputable dealers and get a reasonably good price in my pajamas at sitting at my computer on these Facebook groups. And that is a degree of convenience that I think a lot of people like. However, that convenience, Jeff talked about the advantages and disadvantages of different venues for buying coins. The disadvantages, you lose a lot of the social element and you lose a lot of the sort of in-person social nature of a lot of these things, which I would argue enriches the hobby in a way. So I don't know. I mean, buying coins off the television, I can't recommend that anyone go to the home shopping network and buy those sets of uncirculated presidential dollars that they're selling for 400 bucks. Like I can't, or whatever amount it is. I'm just, I'm, I'm picking a number. I can't, can't say anyone should do that because the coins that are on infomercials don't tend to hold their value very well, uh, if at all. But again, it's the internet is going to impact the buying trends of the hobby, and that's going to include other venues on which to buy coins. So those points are very well taken because I mean, then going back to Jeff, when you're talking about the car thing, and uh, naturally, I try to make any connection I can with my <laughs> previous experience with the cars and the hobby and that type of thing. And just because a guy could afford an 800 horsepower car doesn't mean he should have one. He shouldn't have to do that. 
you know, you can buy the very best or you could buy the parts and do the work yourself. It's just that there's a lot of things there. It's about this hobby is one to me and my perception of it is you get out of it what you put into it. And the, the thrill of the chase, the thrill of the hunt, that becomes the reason why when I have a $5 bill in my pocket, I take it to a car wash and see what kind of quarters I can get for the family collection. And so it's just the different things that you choose to do and uh, how you choose to pursue it. And it, there's no real right or real wrong in a lot of ways. So there are, certainly there are boundaries, but it's just the idea that you know, as someone who's starting out in this game, you try not to make a lot of mistakes. You try not to do a lot of things that are uh, going to get you ridiculed or uh, looked down upon or that type of thing. And I really, you know, put myself in a position of wanting to learn and be in a position to share the knowledge with anybody who's interested and in a, such a manner so that I'm not higher and mightier than they are because they don't know that hopefully they'll start calling things sense instead of the other word. But it's just the idea that, you know, coming down to something like this, you can get out of this whatever you choose to get out of this. You can make it, you know, the strive for a collection. You can buy a collection. You can buy it as investment. You can buy it as an heirloom. You can buy it, whatever, whatever you want to do. And that's what makes it so neat. Different strokes for different folks, so to speak. And I'm probably one of the different ones, but I'm enjoying myself. And that's if you're not going to enjoy yourself, don't bother. That's absolutely true. And and Jeff uses a word in life in general, but in the context of, of numismatics as well, you know, extending grace to people. The idea is that, you know, if an inexperienced collector calls a cent a penny, I don't care. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't bother me in the sense that if in the course of a cocktail party conversation, you gently correct someone and you explain the history behind it, I think that becomes a really interesting learning opportunity. But if a dealer at a show basically tells someone, you know, to go away because they are, you know, they have insufficient knowledge or their knowledge is insufficient according to that dealer. You do run the risk, I think, in being too precise. No, I don't want to say too precise, but you run the risk in being too discerning about which collectors or which collecting experiences are worth your time. Being too discerning, you run the risk of alienating inexperienced people who might otherwise be interested. And it's funny, you drew a parallel to, you know, young numismatists, you know, you sort of consider yourself a young numismatist, because you're sort of first starting out in the hobby, and you're starting to learn a great deal about it. And I've been in that situation fairly recently. And in a lot of ways, I still am, in the sense that, you know, I've only done this professionally for a couple of years in the sense of writing about coins. I've only been doing it professionally for a couple of years. So what I'm trying to say is that I'm sort of in your boat in a lot of ways. And I try to treat all these things as learning opportunities. And I would hope that those like Jeff, who has been exceptionally graceful in this context, would, you know, be willing to extend grace to those of us who aren't as experienced. And and we kind of we've sort of tried to structure the podcast a little bit, not in a serious way, but around, you know, not a lack of knowledge, but around learning opportunities. So you mentioned uh, close to the top layer, you mentioned that, you know, you'd been stumped by some of the trivia questions. I've been stumped on air by the trivia questions. And at the end of the day, you know, I try to roll with it and treat it as an opportunity for other people who are also stumped by it. You know, we're all learning together, right? And I think that that can make the hobby space more welcoming. And uh, I don't go to Google when I hear that question. I go to the books that I have here, and that makes it even more fun. I have gone to Google a couple of times, so you're you're uh, you're you're playing the game in some ways more honestly than I am <laughs> in, in a way. Um, I've I've definitely cheated on a couple of them. So, 
we've got some time. We'll just make this a coin conversation show. You know, as you can tell, we enjoy, love the hobby and talking about it. And what other uh, things are you, you looking to understand as you tread gently forward in your return to the hobby? Well, one of the things that I always think about is because I see all kinds of things because maybe sometimes you read too much or see too much or get into things and opinion starts to outweigh fact. And that's the idea of cleaning coins. Is it acceptable to clean coins or is it something that you just absolutely positively do not do? Um, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, you know, the reality is the phrase that professionals tell everybody and and they mean it and and it's with with honesty and with merit that you know never clean your coins never ever clean your coins we at least i have have heard horror stories from dealers who said that somebody came in a, a surviving spouse came in and brought this collection that their their family member had built over a lifetime and gosh they wanted to make them look really nice before the dealer got them and so they cleaned them and in in so doing just destroyed the market value. So those stories are legion and they are real and they are cautionary notes. The reality is there are a few acceptable practices and there are some that are maybe not acceptable or are not really greeted well, but there's some wiggle room on. You know, dipping coins is a very common practice to meet market standards. Uh, some telemarketing and some folks selling coins, some folks buying coins, they prefer a blast white look, say, on a silver dollar. Silver dollars are popular because of their size, because of the romance of, you know, they're 100 years old and they're, you know, some of them were minted in the Old West. And, you know, there's, there's just this romance about them that's used to sell them. And there are a enough of them, gosh, there are so many of them, that you can create a marketing uh, strategy around them, whether that's, you know, these are from the Binion Hoard or these are were, were found wherever in the, in the bank vault sort of thing. Some folks prefer that and there, there are ways, market acceptable ways to address those, but there are pitfalls in so doing. There are items that were, some collectors chose to lacquer coins in the 50s and 40s, I believe, and, and you know, maybe beyond that or before that. And, you know, now that wouldn't be acceptable, but that was an accepted practice at the time. And nothing is more, I, I don't want to say controversial, but cause of more discussion in the hobby than grading and cleaning. And they go hand in hand because sometimes there are coins in famous collections that, yeah, they've been cleaned. They've changed grades over years, that sort of thing. When they, they get submitted to a different third-party grading service, whatever. That just reflects the market changing. That's one of the reasons people like when a coin that's in an old green holder, say, comes to the market. There's a perception that early on in grading, that grading standards were stricter. And so that if I buy this coin now, I have a chance to break it out of its slab and upgrade it. And in some areas, there's a significant financial reward for doing that. I'll never forget cleaning is something that, you know, Chris talked about going to shows and looking at a lot of coins. That's what it takes in grading and seeing clean coins. 
absolutely, you have to see a lot of coins. And it's also good to have a mentor or a couple mentors. That's where having a local dealer or two, having a local coin club to attend, those are important to share that information and to really help discern the difference. I went to a flea market. I love this flea market. And I I bought a coin there, uh, you know, Philippine issue, and it looked nice. And, you know, it was a sunny day, whatever. I'm looking at it. And I'll admit, you know, grading and cleaning is sort of my weak spots uh, in the hobby. I grew up very arm's length. I read Coin World, but I didn't. I went to one coin show before I came to Coin World. So my strength is the history and the storytelling. And that's why I emphasize that because I didn't have, I didn't get to go to summer seminar when I was a kid, like many folks who are big in the hobby now. I I haven't gone in as an adult. I've took one grading class and it was, uh, I wrote about it for Coin World five years ago, I think it was. And it was pitiful. I mean, I, you know, I admit that's a weakness. So I stick to the, the stuff that I can do a little better. But I went to the flea market and I found this coin and I was so excited. It looked nice or whatever. And I take it home and I post a photo on Facebook and somebody says, oh yeah, that's whizzed, classic whizzed coin. And I go, oh, so that's what a whizzed coin looks like. Now I ended up, I paid a price that was commensurate with its condition. So I didn't lose any money. So that was a a lesson that I learned that wasn't costly, but there's been lessons that have been costly. I went to a a dealer and they were pricing stuff by catalog. And he's like, yeah, you know, we priced it at 75% and I can knock off, you know, another 15% for you or whatever. Well, I got the stuff at 60% of catalog. Okay, great. This is some world stuff, except I didn't realize that catalog pricing for some countries is way off market price. So... I paid that price and gosh, that's not worth what, what I paid cleaning coins to, since that's your, your question is, um, you know, there, there are some instances where you can send stuff to say a, a conservation service and they will treat it properly. Just like if you have a painting that needs conservation, that's accepted in the marketplace, in the art market. And there's a certain place for that in numismatics, but you sort of have to leave it to the professionals or have it done by a professional. And if you're not a professional, then it's always, you can't undo what you've done. You can't unsmoke that cigarette as it were. It's better to not th- than to do it and create a, a damaged piece. Just like there's a couple examples of those, um, uh, the paintings that over in Europe that somebody quote unquote touched up and they looked horrible after the fact that was not done by a professional. Don't be that person with your coin and clean it and make it worse than it was. I would echo a lot of those sentiments. Um, I personally don't clean coins because I don't have the training to do it properly as Jeff alluded to. So I would just end up ruining whichever coins I try to clean. And I avoid clean, dipped, whizzed coins. I I make an effort to avoid them, though, of course, I have plenty in my collection. And if someone is willing to compromise a little bit on quality, buying coins, to borrow Jeff's phrase, at a price point commensurate with their grading or with their um, status as cleaned or damaged coins, you know, you can get a better deal. So if or you can spend less money. So if that's something you're willing to compromise on, then there could be something to be said for buying clean coins if, again, you're buying them at a price that's reasonable 
in light of the damage that they've sustained. So I would describe grading and the process of identifying cleaning. It's sort of like a language in the sense that you sort of have to immerse yourself in it if you're really going to learn how to do it well. And like Jeff, I don't have a huge amount of institutional training in the sense that I didn't go to the ANA summer seminar either. I'd been to about half a dozen coin shows when I arrived at CoinWorld about two years ago half a dozen, maybe a few more. So I hadn't had a tremendous amount of experience on the market side of it either. And like Jeff, I enjoy the research process and I enjoy, you know, the process of writing and storytelling. So like Jeff, I tend to foreground that in my own work. That's one of many reasons that I I wouldn't be a coin dealer full time is that I, I don't have that degree of training and experience. If I wanted to go out and get it, I conceivably could. But where I am right now, I'm better equipped to to tell numismatic stories and to research these topics than I am to try to make a living trading the coins themselves. So in some sense, it's also important to identify, and this is something that I'm in the process of doing, so I can't exactly wax nostalgic about it, but identifying a lane in numismatics can be important to some extent. And most people would argue that that's specialization, that you need to pick a series or a couple of series, really dig down, learn everything there is to learn, and then make that your specialty. And then some people do that with classes of material, early American coppers, for example, EAC, you know, those are people who are interested in early American copper coinage, large cents, half cents, Civil War tokens, other copper tokens and related material. And that's a great specialty. And I, it's certainly a popular one. And I, and I don't begrudge anyone who does specialize in a, a sort of a narrow way. I'm, I tend to be of a mind, and I think Jeff feels similarly, that there are too many interesting classes of material to spend one's entire collecting career in one place. Now, I, again, I don't. that's not a value judgment. It's not to imply that those who do are, are doing it wrong. And as you put it, Larry, you know, there isn't really a wrong way to do it as long as you're enjoying yourself and it's, it's a positive experience for you. It really doesn't matter. But you know, I'm trying to broaden my mind to as many classes of material and as many groups of material as possible in order not only to better understand how these pieces function as part of society in the sense that if you specialize in, in barber half dollars, for example, which are interesting coins and, and certainly a worthy specialty, you know, to me, if you just focus on those, you're sort of losing the forest for the trees because as interesting as half dollars struck between uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century are, I would argue you can learn a lot more about the way that money functioned in America at that time by expanding your, your area of focus. And that allows you to make a lot of connections that you might not have otherwise made. That said, incredibly deep knowledge about a series is in and of itself valuable. So Again, I think there are interesting balances to strike, and especially for someone like me at the in the very beginning of his career and in the very in the very beginning of his sort of professional numismatic journey, you know, there are going to be a lot of decisions that I'm gonna have to make at a certain point in the future. And, you know, it's it's entirely possible that I'll listen back to this interview and go, Oh wow, you know, that's that's where I was at at this particular point in time. So that's one reason that doing the podcast and writing has been an interesting journey for me is you know, these things sort of serve as benchmarks as to where I am right now. You know, where am I in August of 2020? Well, go listen to this podcast and that'll give you a sense as to how I was thinking about it. And and people evolve as collectors over time as well, just like people evolve as people over time. So, you know, those parallel processes and also mutually, you know, impactful processes in the sense that your development in your personal life might actually impact your collecting life and vice versa. Um, you know, I know that, you know, 
going to Coin World and becoming friends with Jeff and, and and other people who work at Coin World and in other areas of the industry, becoming friendly with these folks, I've learned a great deal, and it's given me a different perspective than I would have learned approaching it as just a collector, you know, trying to educate, you know, trying to educate himself over time. So. Again, like I said, there are a lot of decisions, and I think trying to collect and you know work as a numismatist with some intentionality is something that I'm really trying to work towards. I would add quickly, you know, Chris and I acknowledge our interest and our strengths. Somebody who does know the market side so well and has written many times about the compromise between quality and price or the balance thereof is Steve Roach, who's uh, editor-at-large for CoinWorld. And uh, you can go get a subscription to CoinWorld and go look at all his market analysis pieces over the years. I seem to think he wrote about that very recently where he said, you know, here's a coin that it's hold, but, you know, it's a fraction of the cost. And if you're trying to fill the hole in the collection, sometimes you, because some things are are so out of reach, these are the ways you have to do it. And there's a, a great body of research and thinking that he has done on that and presented to coin world readers over the years i would suggest anyone who wants to look at buying a clean coin and and the trade-off between value for the price and and all that look at some of his writing because it's instructive to me as somebody who you know hasn't been on the dealer side of things and hasn't been on that you know the auction house and grading service side of things and i think it's really something that anyone who's going to be in the hobby should familiarize themselves with. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to do this because, I mean, I've learned so much right here, as I do with every podcast, but it's just, uh, you know, the questions that I've had seem kind of elementary, but then again, there may be somebody out there had the same kind of question too, and uh, there's no such thing as a dumb question is what they've I've heard said, though I can dispute some of those. But this time, I mean, it's just the idea that you you guys have a lot of knowledge. I I respect the work that you do. I mean, Coin World is a tremendous publication with the 60 years and and the impact it's made on the hobby and the hobbyists themselves. And to get this opportunity to take a few minutes of your time, I appreciate that having that chance. Well, we thank you. And maybe we can do some more of these in the future. Just the coin conversations. They're fun. Uh, allow us to a little free form and just kind of riff and go go with the flow. What do you think, Chris? I would absolutely love to do this again. This has been really, really enjoyable. And Larry, your point about elementary questions. I, I don't First of all, I didn't find the questions elementary, but I think also even relatively seemingly simple questions often reveal sort of worlds of complexity. And those are certainly worlds that Jeff and I are still exploring as well. So we definitely appreciate you taking the time to, to ask us some questions. And I have really, really enjoyed this. So I would love to do this at some point in the future. And if uh, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it as well. And if they do, I'd love to have this be a regular thing. Absolutely. So anyway, thanks so much for, for taking the time, Larry. We, we oh, really, really appreciate it and had a great time. We think we're going to do some more of these with Larry, so let us know what you thought about them. Then, of course, certainly keep on uh, listening, subscribe in whatever platform so you can hear all of our content every week as it comes out. But until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for the segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the CoinWorld email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes. 
Choose your topics and the high quality content you expect from CoinWorld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up and thanks for listening to the show.